You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Hey, Riverside. Uh, I hope you're as blessed, have been as blessed as I have been by this, uh, this series, this deep dive walk through Paul and Timothy's letter to the Colossians. Um, today, we're sort of beginning to turn a, quarter, a corner towards the finish line of Colossians. We're not going to finish it yet, uh, but because we won't finish it till next week, and then we're going to have another add-on week on Philemon because there's a greeting at the end of Colossians that ties directly to Philemon, if you're wondering why we're doing that. It didn't make it into the title of the series, but there will be an extra week. Um, But today we start heading towards the door, towards the end. Um, So perhaps we're we're in the Midwest, right, here in Indiana? Perhaps you're familiar with the beats of a Midwestern goodbye. Perhaps. Usually involves slapping the top of your thighs. Some Some declaration like, well, or my favorite, I suppose. And then, from that moment, you have another 5 to 45 minutes to say everything that you didn't say, right, earlier. Maybe it's the blood rush from standing up, right? You're like, you get a little blood rush, like, oh, yeah, I remember we forgot to talk about this, this, and this. But sometimes that, that moment, that walk towards the door, is actually like the most productive conversation you've had in the whole night because you're saying all the things you forgot to say earlier. You guys know what I'm talking about, I take it, from the laughter. All right. So in this little section of Colossians 4, 2 through 6, Paul gets into some really practical matters of prayer and living out the faith, really great stuff about holding one another in prayer, living wisely, and demonstrating the gospel. These are simple, tangible ways to live out the unimaginably good news of Jesus that we've been talking about since September as we make our way towards the proverbial door. So let's pray as we jump into this section. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the unimaginably good news of Jesus that we've gotten to take a look at from some very exciting and interesting and challenging angles. We just thank you that as people of the gospel, as people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel, how amazing it is that they continue to be transformed by the gospel. It's not a one and done, but something that continues to shape us throughout our lives as we become more Christ-like. And as you continue to shape us and grow us and, and carve us more into your image, Lord. But thank you. Thank you for this time together today. And may these words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. I love this little description of devoted prayer, right? He leads with an encouragement to devote ourselves to prayer. Devoted being added to other words in Scripture concerning our prayer lives. We're called to pray continuously. We're called to pray persistently. We're called to pray faithfully. And now we're called to pray devotedly. And the prayer, the devoted prayer that he's talking about here seems to be related to expectations of some kind. Expectant prayer. Because it's tied to being watchful and thankful. And if I think about being watchful and thankful, those are modes of expectation, right? Watchful prayer, it definitely conjures images of 
Jesus calling his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. He said, watch and pray. Can you not stay awake with me for one hour? Watch and pray. But when I think about watchfulness in prayer and our own prayer practices, I think of lifting up prayers and having our eyes wide open because how many, how many of you pray? Maybe you don't pray as much as you'd like to, but you pray. You ask God for stuff, right? But praying with our eyes wide open to all the ways that God might actually be responding to those prayers, right? Because sometimes we pray and then we kind of forget about it. The, the ones that we really mean we don't forget about, but sometimes we do. Can we, can we be honest? Sometimes we pray about something and forget about it a little bit. It's one of the reasons that, uh, that I love the prayer of examine so much as a practice. This idea of taking a, a time every night before you go to bed and just praying watchfully through your day, thinking through the ways that God may have been acting, may have been responding to your prayers, may have just been doing things that you didn't notice in the moment, but looking back on your day before it gets away from you, right? This was still today even if it was a few hours ago, before, before it, it erases from your memory, uh, to think about, oh my goodness, look at how God acted there. Look at how God was there. If we're watchful and truly paying attention to God's work in our lives, thankfulness follows, right? Be watchful and thankful. How could we not be thankful if we're truly paying attention to what God's doing in our lives? Right? If we have our eyes open, we're actually paying attention to what God is doing, how could we not be Thankful. God is so good. And Paul asked these folks who are now devoted in prayer because he asked them to be. It just happens that quickly, doesn't it? Be devoted in prayer and then, yeah, oh, done. Got it done by tomorrow. No, but after calling them to to be devoted in prayer, he asked them to spend some of their prayer energy on him. Verse 3. Pray for us too. That's him and Timothy and perhaps others who are working out in the field and and planting churches or encouraging churches. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So clearly God has opened many doors already as evidenced by all of the letters Paul is writing to all of these churches all over, right? God has opened many doors The gospel has taken root in many congregations and many communities. But of course, this is the Apostle Paul, and he's not content with that. He has this apostolic drive to continue to go to plant more and more churches, to reach more communities, because the gospel compels him to, right? He has this commitment and passion for the gospel. So Paul's desire is to proclaim the mystery of Christ to even more people. And I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time on this phrase, the mystery of Christ, because that's what we've been unpacking this whole series of Colossians. The mystery of Christ, the good news of Jesus, this whole, this is, this is what we've been doing week after week after week. So if you want to go back and listen to some sermons from earlier in the fall, yes, the mystery of Christ is there. But notice that he acknowledges, first off, that God is the one that allows this to happen, okay? Therefore, it begins with prayer. He doesn't say, pray that we may be able to knock down any doors that stand between us and the people. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't say, pray for us that we can knock, that we can kick hard enough to open up those doors. No. He says, pray that God may open a door. That's a little different posture, right? Than going in and knocking down doors. A posture that we will get into as the passage continues. And uh, 
we don't want to just gloss over the line, for which I am in chains, right? For which I am in chains. Paul was no stranger to being imprisoned, and while in chains, he would have been waiting for something else to happen. Every time he was arrested, he was waiting for something else to happen, a trial, uh, somebody to step in and protect him and release him, or execution. That was sometimes on the table, right? Waiting for a sentencing, a lashings. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 gives us a really specific description of the various experiences of imprisonment that Paul experienced. So I'm just going to read a little section from that. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then look at this last verse. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. So he asks for prayer. But the first thing he asks for prayer for is for the churches, right? He doesn't ask for prayer for himself. He doesn't even, he mentions his chains, but he doesn't ask for God to release the chains. He asks for prayer. He uses his time in prison quite productively by writing letters to encourage the churches, right? It's truly incredible to think of all the life-giving words that you and I have access to just because when Paul was sitting in jail cells, he wrote. Because of his great concern for the churches, he just continued to write, continued to get on paper all of this stuff, all the good news that he wanted to get across. It's mind-boggling to me how the Holy Spirit works. But Paul does ask prayer one more time for an important detail in his behalf. He says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Proclaim it clearly. The very idea of proclaiming the unimaginably good news of Jesus and all of its simplicity and all of its complexity is quite a task, but it's a beautiful one. And it's a task many times precisely because of the closed doors you run into as you proclaim it. And I find it heartening that Paul, like as a fellow teacher, I'm a teacher too, that he asked for other people's prayers to increase the clarity of his message. So just the fact that the Apostle Paul was like, I'm not sure I'm getting it quite, quite clear. Uh, it's, it's heartening to me because I'm not always sure either, right? Uh, it shouldn't be taken as language of shame or insecurity, though, this prayer for clarity, or this as I should. Is Paul shooting himself and saying, no, I shouldn't, shouldn't be doing this or should be doing that? No. It's a sense of vocation, right? This call to carry on the work that we often now call Paul's apostleship to the Gentiles. We call that, call that his ministry, right? Bringing the good news of Jesus to people of every background, that is his call. That is what God has put in his life, and he is doing it, and he wants, to, he wants prayer that he can do it even more and do it even better. 
So after asking for prayer, these last two verses, Paul extends wisdom for how the Colossian church folk can be an outpost for the kingdom of God in their community. So verses 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul doesn't just want them to pray for him in his ministry. That is one aspect. He wants them to pray for him in his ministry, but that's not the only thing. He also wants them to have their own ministry. He wants the Colossians to be living an embodied ministry of the gospel in their own community. So what does it look like for a community, for a church to live missionally as an outpost for the kingdom of God? These verses, they give us some really good foundation for that very thing. You might call it missional living, right? These are intentionally missional settings among, quote, as he says, outsiders. How are the disciples of Jesus living their daily lives outside of the church? What does it look like for them to live as Christians out in the world? We could pull out a few of these virtues for missional living from these two verses. And I would call those categories wise living and modeling. We're going to walk through them once at a time. Attentive readiness, gracious speaking and listening, relational intelligence, and knowledge about Jesus and his kingdom. These are all outlined in this passage. So the first one, this call to, as Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, is what I'm calling wise living and modeling. So the Greek word behind act, be wise in how you act, is the word peripateo, which is the same word that we use to describe living or walking with Jesus, like our walk with Jesus. It's that same word. Be wise in how you walk towards others, how you walk in the world. It's a call to an embodied Wisdom, a way of being in the world that has integrity, a comprehensive obedience to the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom, a call to be wise. And and it can also mean implicitly like, don't be a dummy or don't be a jerk, right? I see that too. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Don't be a dummy, don't be a jerk, if you know what that means. Sometimes you need to hear that. Maybe I need to hear that sometimes, okay? Boldness and excitement. Boldness and excitement are really good things, okay? I don't want to rule that thing out. Boldness and excitement are really good things, and they can be contagious in the best possible ways, but we have to be wise within our enthusiasm, right? Sometimes enthusiasm can come across as harsh, right? But Paul says, make the most of every opportunity, which stands behind our second virtue, which I think is what I'm calling attentive readiness. If we're asking the question of your opportunity for what? Make the most of every opportunity for what? What kind of opportunities are we talking about here? The obvious answer to this passage is the opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ. The opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Oh no, he's talking about evangelism. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Is he asking us to do evangelism? Am I supposed to go out there with tracts today now? Okay. Does he know that calling it proclaiming the mystery of Christ makes it even scarier? Mm. It's very intimidating to think about evangelism. Anybody feeling that? 
Just me? I'm scared of evangelism too, so I'm right there with you. I think this, post- this, this passage is calling us to a posture of attentive readiness when it comes to evangelism. Or you may call it sharing your faith. That's, that's evangelism, right? Sharing your faith. Or telling people about Jesus. Maybe that's what you call it. All of these things are great things. And I don't know your background with the, the term evangelism or the concept of sharing your faith. But if your experiences or background have left a sour taste in your mouth, I just hope you'll reconsider. I hope you'll reconsider that there are healthy and beautiful ways to bear witness to Jesus that are not coercive, that are not manipulative, that are not manufactured, but are anchored in attentive readiness and being with people and being ready to share when the opportunity arises. As a follower of Jesus, if you're really paying attention to how the Holy Spirit works, remember we're talking about that, being watchful in prayer. If you're really paying attention to the Holy Spirit, how he might be working in any and every relationship you may have, in your family, with your coworkers, your classmates, your friends. If you're paying attention to how God might be working in their lives and you are ready yourself to bear witness to that working, to God working in their lives, there will be opportunities to share your faith. It's easier to share your faith with people who already share that faith with you, right? Like it's easier to share faith with people who believe it, the same things you do, right? That's easier. And we still share our faith with people who believe the same things as us. But there are people who don't share your faith, who could and need to also be blown away by the good news of Jesus, right? Uh, did y'all not hear that? There are people who don't share your faith who need to be blown away by the good news of Jesus, yes? Okay, I hope so. And it needs to be contextualized for their life. And if you are the person with some attentive readiness and patience and grace, maybe you can be the one to share that faith with them. So the question is, are we? Are we attentive? And are we ready to make the most of those opportunities? All right, next. We okay with that? Okay, well, next, let's move on. Paul says to let your conversation be always full of grace Seasoned with salt, which I'm summing up with the virtue of gracious speaking and listening. So for those wondering, seasoned with salt, that probably doesn't mean that Paul is calling us to use salty language like sailors. Probably not. He doesn't doesn't explicitly say that, but I'm, I'm thinking that's probably not what he means. I think it's more about being deliberate and intentional in the way we interact, presenting someone with thoughtful and considered words, or in the words of the metaphor, Serving them meals that have already been seasoned, not making them add salt table side. Right? If you're into the metaphor, just go with it. Some people are picture people, and I think Paul uses the picture for a reason. Um, But this is about conversation, which is a dance of speaking and listening. Right? That's what conversation is. Sometimes it's a little bit more like a monologue where you just listen and listen and listen and listen, or you're the talker that talks and talks and talks and talks. But in general conversation, is a dance of both speaking and listening. And all of it is to be full of grace. So what does it look like to be gracious in our speaking and our listening? For one, listening at all, to actually listen is gracious. To listen is to be gracious and extend grace to another person. Pretending to listen, not great. I may have done that a few times. It's not great. Showing the person that you're talking to that you're distracted by darting your eyes around or checking your phone over and over, also not great. That's not listening. 
Um, actually listening, though, and being honest with the person, if you did lose focus and miss something that they said and asking them, could you please repeat that? That's actually a good thing, right? Being honest and not saying, oh, uh, yeah, I totally got that. And then later finding out that you missed something very important because you weren't paying attention. That is not loving. That is not good. That is not listening. Okay? How do we thoughtfully respond to what people are actually saying in conversation? Not trying to steer a conversation even directly where we want it to go, but listening. And let's go back to the season with salt metaphor. Waiting for the flavors to marinate together in the conversation, right? Sometimes it takes a little patience for a dish to get the way you want it. Chili tastes good, better after six hours than it does after one, right? Amen? Come on. You know what I'm talking about. Last part of verse 6. So that you may know how to answer everyone. I broke it into two different virtues, which is relational intelligence and knowledge about Jesus and his kingdom. So it's really important for us to keep both the relationship and the knowledge pieces at the forefront when we're trying to bear witness. Some of us are super excited for the part where we get to give answers, right? That part got you excited. Love that. Love that. You might have a journal or a binder full of answers to difficult questions about the faith. You may have apologetics books and manuals with the answers to commonly asked questions or objections to the faith. And those answers themselves can be wonderful and useful, but they will be ineffective if you don't know how to use them, right? Because you see, as it says, knowing how to answer is important so that you may know how to answer everyone. Not just so that you will know all the answers, but know how to answer everyone. Okay. So knowing how to answer is important just as having an answer is important, right? Because if you know how to give an answer but you don't have an answer, that's also very, very limited, right? Um, you can be highly relationally intelligent and not have answers to anybody's questions, right? You can't, we, we can't just pull this out and say, that's great. Um, personally, I think that humbly admitting to not having all the answers is a beautiful thing in any conversation. Uh, notice it says to answer everyone, not to answer every question. We don't have to have an answer to every single question. It's okay to say, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. That's okay. But if you're not actually convinced of the good news of Jesus or that it is going to be good news to another person, if you're not bought into the way of life of the kingdom of God, you may be able to have friends and build relationships, but you're really likely not going to bear witness to the good news of Jesus, right? You're not going to do it if you don't believe it. So how is it marinating in your life? How is the good news root in your own life? Is it just a duty that I feel like I got to do? Or is it out of the overflow of my excitement about my actual relationship with Jesus, my actual, that this idea that the way of living in the kingdom of God is the way? <sighs> if we got that, then we'll share it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful that Paul gives us this concise teaching here like a, towards the end of Colossians blowing our minds with this incredible, far-reaching, unimaginably good news. We get some practical teaching on how to pray for the ministry of the gospel, how to live it out, and how to share it with an outside world that absolutely could be made alive with that good news by its teaching. 
So let's go back to the Midwestern goodbye. I picture Paul walking the Colossians to the metaphorical door, right, on his way out to his next missionary journey. Everybody's uttered their rounds of, well, I probably should. And, well, the kids have school tomorrow. The people have been met with this gracious opportunity to apply all this teaching by continuing to keep Paul and the missionaries in their prayers and to live missionally right in their own backyards. And we can do it right here today in South Bend just like they could back there in Colossae, right? Prayerful, watchful, thankful, Wise living and modeling, attentive readiness, gracious speaking and listening, relational intelligence, knowledge about Jesus and his kingdom. And today, I ask you, who are you praying for this month? Who are you praying for this month? Is there somebody in your life that you are trying to share the good news of Jesus with, that you think could use the good news of Jesus, would love to hear the good news of Jesus? You're not sure have ever heard it or haven't heard it quite contextually the way they need to hear it. Maybe you're the one to share about the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And I just want to give you a little bit of space. We're going to come to the table in a moment. But we'll take a minute to just prayerfully think, who are those people in our lives that we might be praying for this month? Attentively ready to share attentively ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus where we see it. So let's just take a moment to be still. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this meal that we get to share together. We thank you for inviting those, all those who have given their lives over to you to be part of a body And to share in a meal over and over again to remind ourselves that we are connected to you, that our life is in you, that our hope is in you, and that you are the head of this body, this family that we get to participate in and be part of together as sisters and brothers in the faith and as your daughters and sons. Lord, we know that there are those who have not been compelled by the message of Jesus. Some who we know, some who we love dearly. We pray for them today. We pray for opportunities to share and delight and bear witness. We pray for your hope and your mercy and your grace to take root in more and more people's lives. Pray that we can be a beacon of hope as your children. And we thank you. We thank you for the good gifts that you give to us as part of your family. The riches of Christian community, the wonders of the fruit of the Spirit, 
a life worth being excited about. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Continue to shape us and fill us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.